Good morning. Happy Labor Day. Hope you're getting a chance to enjoy your long weekend. If you're retired and every day is Labor Day, then hope you're enjoying sharing a long weekend. Um, we are going to talk about prayer today, as you might have gathered from listening to the scripture being read. And we're going to do that by reading through how Luke does it. And we're going to read it and we're going to do it by listening to how Jesus taught his disciples about prayer. No better place to go to learn about prayer than Jesus himself, right? And this passage is a little unique because it starts out with the Lord's Prayer, but with a slightly different version of the Lord's Prayer. It's not the same one that we are kind of memorized from Matthew 6. For some reason, Luke gives a somewhat abbreviated version of it. But then Luke adds a parable that's unique to Luke. It's only in Luke that gives us a slightly different nuance of prayer. And then he ends it by adding in some other teaching that's also found in the Sermon on the Mount. And together, when we look at all 13 verses, we end up with this amazing synopsis of prayer and, and really almost everything we need to pray effectively. And the goal of today, or what re- not what really should happen today, is as we leave here, we should be enormously encouraged in our prayer life. Because what this passage has to say is amazing in so many ways. And it, bre- it really breaks down into three sections. And if you're a note taker, um, those sections are verses 1 to 4 is what to pray, verses 5 to 10 is how to pray, and verses 11 to 13 is who we pray to, or if you're a grammarian, to whom we pray. So it's what, how, and who. And when we put this all together and see all that Jesus has to say, we should walk out of here just bursting to go spend time in prayer if we do the right job of exposing this passage. Now, before we get to the text, to me, it's helpful to rehearse a few things about prayer. At least it's good for me to think about this. Number one is that prayer is is different. It's one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian life. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British pastor of the mid-20th century, said prayer is the hardest thing we do as Christians. And if you think about it, there's nothing natural about it. You don't talk to anybody else the way you do in prayer. It's not just having a conversation like you would anyone else. It isn't. It's different than that. It's also, in some respects, hard to figure out, right? We are praying to a God who is omniscient, who is not bound by time or space, and yet praying in a way that we are hoping to change what happens, even though we know theologically it's already been decided, right? So there's an element to it that's hard to completely understand. And then, actually, it really is hard to do. But what we also know, though, is from reading the Bible, it's vitally important. We have a personal relationship with our Father in heaven, right? Christ died. The the, uh, veil between the, the temple was torn, signifying that we now have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And as part of that personal relationship... Communication is vitally important. It is the lifeblood of our relationship with God. So we know it's important. Paul actually tells us, pray without ceasing. So through Paul, God commands us to pray. And yet, it's kind of hard sometimes. 
And sometimes it's really hard. And actually, its difficulty is a testament to how important it is. Because who doesn't want us to pray? Who doesn't want us to pray is the enemy. And that's why when we go to pray, instantly we think of nine million different things, right? I teach a class here um, periodically. By the way, starts Wednesday, first Wednesday in October if you're interested. Um, but I, 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 I always know that when I'm in the middle of teaching a class, when I go to pray, I will instantly start thinking about the next lesson. Because in, and all of a sudden I can spend two or three minutes doing that instead of praying. The enemy knows how important it is, and that's why he tries to convince us you got a bunch of other things to do first, tries to fill our mind with other things when you try and do it, because he knows how important it is. So with that in mind, it's great that then Jesus or God puts a text like this in there explaining how to pray, what to pray, and all those things so that we can be encouraged and know that not only does he command us to do it, but he tells us how to do it. With that in mind, let's turn our attention to the text, and we're just going to work our way through it. The first thing to notice, which I think is, is something that's really interesting, is when you look at the Lord's Prayer in verses 2, 3, and 4, look at the pronouns that he uses. Do you notice something about them? We don't say, give me each day my daily bread, forgive me my sins, for, for, and lead me not into temptation, right? It's all plural. Don't lead us into temptation. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. The whole thing is plural. And what that points to is that prayer is not all about me. That when I pray, I don't just pray about me, I take others with me. And if you think about it, I think as we mature in our prayer life, that we, and, and that we, we intercede on behalf of others, and as we mature in our prayer life, I think it probably should uh, dawn on us that there are more others than just us, right? They outnumber us. And so from that standpoint, as we pray more and more, we should probably spend more and more time praying for others than just for us. It also points to probably that we should pray with others. There are elements to corporate prayer that probably can't be replicated individually. So prayer isn't supposed to be all about me, and that's in those pronouns, but then it's also reflected in the first two petitions. And the first one is, Father, hallowed be your name. And in that one, there are two words that are really important to understand. One is hallowed. Hallow is not a word we think about or we bandy about a lot, probably not a word you use a whole lot. Matter of fact, it might be a word that you've only used when you've recited the Lord's Prayer and may not have ever really even understood what it meant, right? But hallowed means set apart, holy, revered. And then the second word that's important to understand in that is name. Name, when, ref when referring to God, means ref refers to all that makes God who God is, his attributes, his characteristics. So what this is a prayer for is that, his, that God himself would be revered, set apart, and holy. But notice something. This is a petition. This isn't an acknowledgment. We're not just praying, you are holy. No. We are, act, we are asking God to act. So from that standpoint, what we're saying is, Father, please make your name holy and revered and set apart in the world that I am praying for. Or said another way, 
Father, please glorify yourself in my life today and the life of those that I am praying for. Please enable me to live in such a way that brings glory to your name and gives it the, the correct and appropriate role in our world. We're asking God to act. We're asking God to do that in our lives. And what Jesus does by having this be the very first petition, he establishes from the get-go that we are to pray in such a way that it reflects the way we are supposed to be living. Because how are we supposed to be living? Why are we here? Why is anything here? It's all for God's glory, right? That's why God created Ultimately, that's why God redeemed, all to bring glory to himself. And if that's the case, then our prayers should reflect that. And so right off the bat, we, we focus our minds on, this is about you, it's not about me. Help me to glorify you today. And help those I am praying for to glorify you. Which then leads into the second petition. Your kingdom come. I think we can understand this petition from three different ways. Number one, we're saying, and it kind of goes along with the first petition, but it is, help me today to live in such a way that I am living according to the precepts of your kingdom, not the precepts of my kingdom, or the precepts and values of the kingdom around me. We live in a fallen world, right? We live in a fallen world that wants us to think a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way. Here, we are asking for God's help to help us to live differently than that. It's to live according to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When you go through the Sermon on the Mount, one thing that just should explode off the page, and that is how differently we are called to be than what the world is. Essentially, what you could say in the Sermon on the Mount is anything the world does, you do the opposite, right? Well, to live that way, to think that we can live according to how Christ calls us to live in our own strength is immensely foolish, And so what Jesus says is, you need help, ask for it. Ask for help in living according to my kingdom. The second way I think we can look at this petition is that we are also then to ask for God's kingdom to spread to those who don't know it or to those who aren't in it. And so this is a great time to pray for those we know who need Jesus, who who are not saved. And we can pray specifically for them, not just please save everybody, But please save these people who need you, who need your salvation. And then thirdly and lastly, I think it is to say, give me a perspective that is longing for your kingdom. Help me to think through the fact, I really am, your kingdom come. We want your kingdom to come. We want this eventually, your kingdom to be fully realized in this earth, and so that when you come and, and the, the final days happen and we go, all go to the new earth and we live in paradise forever. That's what we ultimately long for. But as we aren't there yet, we ask for God to give us an eternal perspective on our life today. Father, help me to see things differently. Help me to see things with the thought in mind that this is not my ultimate home. And really what we're praying for is we're praying to see this world and this life as a means to an end, not an end. And there again, what does the world scream out to us? That this life is ultimate. And that everything that happens here is what you want, is is the ultimate goals you should have. And you should be focused on those things. And what Jesus says is, 
God knows you need those things. Seek first my kingdom. And so in this petition, we pray for the ability to do that. And think about that. Remember, he is saying, pray in this way. This is how we are to pray continually. He knows that left on our own, there's no way we do this, right? There's no way in a, in a, in a world that is screaming out to us 24-7 that this world is everything there is and you're supposed to walk by sight, not by faith. That the only way we walk by faith and not by sight, walk according to what we know instead of what we see, is with his help. And so we continually pray this, give me your perspective. Give me an eternal perspective on my life and the world around me. Well, then it comes to the third petition. And this is interesting because notice the third comes before, and this is going to sound really profound, but the third comes before the fourth, right? I'm an accountant, so that's why those kind of numbers make sense. But look at the fourth petition. The fourth petition in verse 4 is forgive us our sins. Before that, he says pray for your needs. And there's an element to that where we would expect it to be reversed, right? Make, make sure that you're right with God, then talk about your needs. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, first, pray about your needs. But think about it. It follows after the first two petitions. And what are the first two petitions? Completely God-centered, right? And so when we have our minds focused that way, that this life is about him and this life is about his kingdom, then when we start bringing our needs to him, we bring it with a slightly different nuance and a slightly different flavor. That it's not just gimme, gimme, gimme. It is, please provide for me so that I can live in such a way that I am fulfilling the precepts of your kingdom and honoring your name. Notice something else about it. Do you see where he says, give us each day our daily bread. Each day, daily bread. There's an immediacy to that. Now, in Jesus' time, this made all the sense in the world because in his time, you were paid every day. If you, you know, it's like the, um, the parable of the laborers in the field, right? The guy sends them in at different times and then, and then settles up with them at the end of the day. And the way it worked in that economy was if you were a laborer, you worked sunup to sundown and then you got paid at the end of the day. And if you didn't get paid at the end of the day, you didn't eat the next day. So you were always paid. So this made sense from that standpoint as an illustration. To us, maybe not so much. That's not how we live. Odds are nobody in this room is worried about eating today. But yet, he tells us, even us in this room, to pray this. Because it's an acknowledgement that all we have is from him. And whether we understand it or not, we are completely and wholly dependent on him. We have nothing without him. What, have you, what do you have that you haven't received? And so we pray, understanding that I need help. And Jesus said, without him, I can do nothing. And so I and those I pray for, Father, please give us what we need in order to honor you. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this, and that is, does an omniscient God need us to tell him what our needs are? Jesus even tells the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, God knows your needs before you bring them to him. But yet here, he's commanding us to do exactly that, right? 
And there's an element to that, like, why? Well, I think there are probably two reasons. One is when we pray specifically for specific needs and then we see God acting to meet those needs, what's that result in? Thanksgiving and glory to God, right? We see him moving in a way that we might not have otherwise recognized had we not been praying for that very thing. But secondly, and we'll get into this more when we get to the second section, it means that prayer in and of itself is valuable. See, if prayer were only a means to an end, if prayer was just a way to, I just need to get these things, so I'm going to pray, this petition wouldn't be there. But the fact that it is there means that prayer in and of itself is valuable. Prayer isn't just a means to an end. The very act of praying is an end unto itself. Hold on to that thought because we'll develop it more. But that's the only way this particular petition makes sense. Because otherwise, it's, I'm telling you something you already know. Why are we doing this? Does that make sense? Okay. Then we go into the fourth one, which was forgive us our sins. And remember, everything that we're talking about here is how Jesus says we are to pray continually. And he says, you should continually bring your sins to God. If you really step back and think about that, that's amazing. Because that means that we, we do not have a God who has this posture that says, you better not blow it. You blow it, man. You're going down. No. There's no way that can be true if his son says, come to God repeatedly, continually, always, when you pray, bring your sins to him and confess them and ask him to forgive them. The only way that makes sense is if we come to a merciful Father. Remember, what's the very first word of this prayer in verse 2? Father. We aren't coming to a judge, we're coming to a Father. Because we have trusted in Christ's work on the cross and all those sins have been forgiven that will ever be committed, that means that when we, since we are still fallen and we still sin, we can bring those with us to our Father, restore the fellowship that that sin screwed up, and be forgiven. And I was really hit this week with the fact that Jesus says this is continual and ongoing part of your prayer. He could have said, hey, on those times where you screw up, then you got to throw in the forgiveness. But, you know, hopefully that won't be a part of your prayer all the time. That's not what he says at all. He says it is part of your regular prayer that you forgive, that you ask for forgiveness. And we should step back and go, how much does our God love us? And how merciful is he that he does this? And you know what? It's, it's, it, again, is kind of antithetical to how we interact with people a little bit. And the enemy uses that, by the way, to convince us that God is like us. And so that when we sin, when we really blow it, what the enemy wants us to do is go, hey, listen, you can't just go to God right now. He's kind of not speaking to you right now. you got to kind of let the, you know, let the dust settle for a while before you can take this to God because you really blew it. That's what the enemy does. And he wants us to think that God treats us the way we interact. You know, we get into a fight with somebody, we may not speak to him for a while. And yet Jesus says, bring your sin to God regularly, all the time. And if you think about that, 
when we do that, it offers us then protection against further sin. Because when does sin thrive? It thrives in the dark, right? Sin loves to be hidden. Sin hates light. And yet when we bring that sin to God, what's it do? It exposes it. It shows light on it. And so if we get into that habitual, continual, regular confession and asking for forgiveness, then it helps to inoculate us to some extent against further sin and gives us protection. And then the other thing it does is it allows us to celebrate the grace and mercy that is showered on us all the time. And we are more amazed at what a great God and Savior we have. Which is then why he says in the second part of 4, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. If we have a picture of how much we have been forgiven, we will forgive others. And if we don't forgive others, we don't have an appreciation for how much we've been forgiven. Christians should be the most merciful people on earth. And if we aren't, then it shows we don't have a grasp of our own salvation, our own need. Well, that leads into the last petition. And lead us not into temptation. Now, this one's easy to misunderstand. As a matter of fact, I think it was a couple of years ago, and I don't think I'm making this up. I could have sworn I I remember reading this, that the Pope actually came out and said that he no longer is including this particular line in the Lord's Prayer because he said God can't tempt anyone, so that can't be part of the prayer. I guess when you're Pope, you get to unilaterally do that. Well, it's a complete misread of what this means. Yes, God can't tempt us. James tells us that. God can't be tempted, nor will he tempt any of us. But we're not saying, Jesus isn't telling us to pray, oh God, please don't tempt us. He's saying, pray that God will lead you away from temptation. We live in a world where everything tempts us. You have the world, the flesh, the devil, everything trying to lure us away from God and into sin. And what this prayer says is, I need protection in that world Please, Father, unlike all these other things, lead me away from temptation. In the Matthew version of that, the next line is actually, and protect us from the evil one. In both cases, it is asking for protection. And think about it again. We should be praying this continually. And if we don't pray it continually, there's an arrogance there, isn't there? This is, no, I got it. I'm all right. No problem, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to fall today, right? When we have an appreciation not only of God's mercy, but an appreciation of our own vulnerability and how easily we are drawn away by the shiny things of this world, we will continually ask God, lead me away from that, protect me from it. Well, that is what to pray. Now we move into how to pray, which is verses 5 to 10. And this parable, when you understand it, to me this got me enormously excited when I first studied this and thought, holy smokes, think about what he's saying here. Because I think this, I I don't know, I'm hoping I can communicate this in such a way or maybe just go, well, I'm glad you're excited about it. But I think it is so, it just is incredible to me because it shows us another aspect of our father. The the parable itself is pretty easy to understand. A guy has unexpected visitors that come over. In that culture, hospitality is hugely important. 
he realizes since these people are unexpected, he has no food for them. Goes over to his neighbor's house, even though it's at midnight. Knocks on the door. Bob, would you give me three loaves? Give me three loaves of bread because I've got visitors. I've got to feed them something. Bob's inside and says, go away. I'm in bed. We're all settled in. Leave me alone. Go away. Neighbor just keeps knocking. And he knocks and he knocks and he never gives up. And finally, the guy inside goes, gee whiz, okay, yes. Gets up. Here are your three loaves. Please leave me alone. Goes back. The guy gets his three loaves because of his, and in the ESV it says impudence, right? But that also means persistence or shamelessness. Now, here's the amazing thing. Understand who's who in this parable. God is the man inside in bed. That may sound a little weird, but that's what this illustration is. We are the guy outside knocking on the door. And what Jesus is saying is, you need to pray that way. You need to be persistent in your prayer. Now, the illustration has limitations. He is not saying that we pray and wear God out to finally God says, okay, fine, whatever. Yes, stop praying, win the lottery, whatever. Just stop praying about it, right? That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is we are to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and keep praying and pray till you get an answer. Because what do we do? We lose hope. We lose heart. We pray and we pray and nothing happens and we go, well, you know what? Prayer doesn't work. Or prayer maybe works for some people. It doesn't for me because I've prayed. And Jesus says, no, no. You persist. You are shameless in how you pray. You just keep going and you keep going and you keep going. When I was in fifth grade, and yes, I know this illustration goes back a ways. When I was in fifth grade, I attended Christian school with the Heritage Christian School. And the teacher would periodically, I don't remember how often, but would periodically take prayer requests. And every time she took prayer requests, I mean every time, there was a girl named Lynn in my class. Lynn was probably not among the cool kids. She was a little different. But every time the teacher asked prayer requests, Lynn raised her hand, please pray for my uncle, he's not saved. Next time, please pray for my uncle, he's not saved. Next time, please pray for my uncle, he's not saved. Got to the point where the rest of us are mouthing the words when she's doing her prayer requests. And actually got to the point where the teacher would start out prayer request time by writing Lynn's uncle, Salvation, on the board going, Lynn, we still praying? Yes, we are. But here's the thing. What did little, little 11-year-old Lynn, little 11-year-old Lynn, understand? Maybe she couldn't have verbalized that I'm doing this because of Luke 11. But she knew my uncle's still not saved. So we need to keep praying until he does. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I will tell you in my own life, I've been praying over 50 years um, for my dad's salvation. I've been, since I'm 59, almost 60 years old, from the, from the time I was old enough to understand that he wasn't a believer, I've been praying for it. He's 93 now. So far, it hasn't worked. But Jesus would say, keep praying. And the reason is then you have to take a step back and go, okay, why? Why do you want us to keep praying? And there can only be one answer. Again, it's not to wear them out. It's not to prove that we really want it. You know, I, have, I read a commentary that said that. We had to show God we really want it. It's like, that, that can't be it. 
It's because prayer in and of itself has value because of who we are pursuing. When we persistently pray, we become more like the one we are persistently praying to. The very act of prayer furthers our sanctification. We become more like him by just doing that. It's the only reason this makes sense. We pray and we pray and we keep praying because that very act makes us more like him. It's interesting how he then goes on in 9 and 10. And look at it. Look look at that first phrase in verse 9. And I say to you, you know what that means? That means this isn't just some encouragement. This doesn't mean this is a suggestion. He commands this. This is a command. This is how you are to pray. You are to be persistent in your prayer. And you are to keep assaulting the doors of heaven. And then he goes on and says, Knock, and, or ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. And look at the tense of those verbs. That's all present tense. So what that means is, for everyone who asks and keeps on asking, everyone who seeks and keeps on seeking, everyone who knocks and keeps on knocking, that's what that means. And those kind of action verbs mean that we really do aggressively assault the doors of heaven until we find out that either it's no or something happens. We do not stop. And those kind of verbs also, by the way, preclude kind of a lazy, now I lay me down to sleep type of praying. It means that we don't just do this kind of, oh, I pray when I have time. I pray if I don't have a bunch of other things going on. I'm probably not going to have time. It's a busy day. It can't be that kind of praying, not in having those kind of action words. He is talking about aggressive, laborious, hard-working, continual, and persistent prayer that will not go away. You just keep knocking on that door until something happens. And then by very doing that, that act ends up making us more like him, which then explains what he means when he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you shall find, knock and it will be opened to you. Right? You could read that and go, so if I pray long enough, I always get what I want? No. No, you don't. But, in most, but in what he's saying is, you end up with something much better. You end up with me. That's what he's saying. That when you ask and you knock and you seek, ultimately I give you me because you become more like me. Prayer is not a means to an end. Prayer is an end into itself because of what it does in our hearts and minds and our lives. Well, then that leads us into the last section, verses 11 to 13, and who we pray to. And what he says is, you know what? Your God is a good father. And as a good father, he won't give you bad gifts. And importantly, he won't give you bad gifts even when you ask for them. He only gives you good gifts. When my son Matt was, I don't know, three or four years old, he came to me and said, I want you to build me a suit of armor out of wood. And I told Matt, I said, you know, that's probably a little outside of my skill set. 
I don't think I'm going to go out and get the old two-by-fours and make you a suit of armor. He said, okay, what about could you make just the piece that goes here? You know, the breastplate. He didn't use that term, but can you use that? And I said, well, okay, maybe I can. I said, but here's the thing. If I just make that piece, how's it going to stay up if you don't have the rest of the armor? He said, well, could you nail it into my chest? (laughs) Now, I want you to know, as the wise father that I was, I didn't do that. And I explained to Matt, that probably wasn't a great idea. And I I don't think he believed me at the time in his three-year-old little mind, but I think today he would thank me for that. And as silly as that sounds, there are probably times where we go to our Heavenly Father and ask him to nail something into our chest, right? And what he says here is, as a good father, I won't give you a bad gift. I will only give you good gifts. And there's protection in that. And it also means that no isn't a bad answer. Because no means I have something better for you. What you've asked for isn't what's best. I have something better. Because I'm your good and loving Heavenly Father. And you know, when you combine this verse with what Paul tells us in Romans 8, Romans 8, 26, where he says that the Spirit prays for us with groanings which can't be uttered because we don't know how to pray, then it's like, holy smokes, God has us coming and going in prayer. He won't answer a foolish request, and His Spirit actually prays for us because we don't know how to pray. And that's when you take a step back and go, what a glorious Father. I pray you take it from there. I am protected, and not only that, but you pray for me because I don't know how to pray. And you, are end up, you, you handle everything, soup to nuts, in your love for me, in your mercy, in your grace, in your sovereignty, in your strength. You take it all. And we should be overwhelmed by that. And we also should be greatly encouraged by that. He ends by saying, He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. You know what that means? It means that when you pray for me, when you pray and say that you are praying for my strength to obey me, when you are praying for the ability to please me, to obey me, I answer those prayers. God always answers prayers that ask for him. When you ask me for me, I always say yes. And that is even, that's like, the final encouragement in this text. So when you look at this whole thing together, we know what to pray because of the five petitions here. Focused on God before we focus on us. Knowing that we have a merciful God that we can take our sins to and a God who wants to protect us from further sin. That we are to pray with aggressive persistence assaulting the throne of God And he says, yeah, bring it on. I command you to do that. I mean, isn't there an element where sometimes you think that prayer is kind of grudgingly allowed? And yet our God says, are you kidding me? I command you to pray and never stop praying and keep coming with your request. Bring them on. Go, bring them. And then says, I'm a good father who will protect you from your own limited perspective and foolishness. It's an amazing text when you think about it that way, isn't it? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for what you, what you told your disciples and what Luke recorded here. And I really do ask that, and I, and I pray this for everybody in here, starting with me, that we would walk out of here with a newfound commitment to the privilege that we have to pray and a command to pray and with our eyes open to how important it is to you and all that you do for us as a result that our lives would be absolutely drenched with it. And Father, the, the enemy fights us constantly on it. But I'd ask you to help us to overcome him and then to, be, to draw closer to you and become more like you through the act of continual prayer. You are a great God. You are a loving Father. And we thank you so much for your word and for the benefits you give us and the fact that we can come boldly before you because of your son's work. It's in his name. Amen.